I am here today with Dennis McDougall, the acclaimed author of such celebrated books on Lou Wasserman, The Last Mogul, The Chandler Family, Jack Nicholson, and Bob Dylan, as well as Dennis is an award-winning journalist having worked at the Los Angeles Times for 10 years, a longtime contributor to TV Guide, and was a producer at CNN during the O.J. Simpson trial. Dennis, it is a pleasure to have you on America Speaks today. Well, it is a delight and a privilege to be here with you. And I have every hope that uh, we'll be able to uh, end all of America's miseries overnight, simply by our conversation here today. Indeed, I'm counting on that. You know, Dennis, it's no surprise you have been called L.A.'s number one muckraker. Well, that was uh, a few years ago. I don't uh, rake as much muck as I once did, but I'll still try to, you know, get a shovel and a pick now and then and dig around and see if I can find any morsels down in the dirt that flows down the concrete channel of the Los Angeles River. I want to begin by diving into your new book, California Bloodline, The Legacy of Jerry Brown. In this era, dominated by corrupt and self-serving politicians, what made you take on Jerry Brown? Oh, wow. Short question, long answer. Jerry Brown has always been one of my heroes, I suppose. He's flawed, obviously. He's outspoken. He's visionary. He's uh, thin-skinned. He has all of the earmarks of being an American original, uh, and he's all ours. That is, he belongs to California, hence the working title of the book is California Bloodline, the legacy of Jerry Brown. The Browns, Jerry and his father Pat, were pronounced a dynasty some time ago because they both were governors of this state and no small potatoes when it came to their respective times in office. Both have been visionary governors. California's had nearly as many governors as the U.S. has had presidents. You can count on one hand those who've had a real impact. Pat and Jerry Brown. These are the people who have led California from sort of a backward state, at least in the eyes of the rest of the nation, 150 years ago, to what is arguably the leading light, the city on the hill, which is a trope going back to colonial time. It's the idea of the medieval castle on the hill that oversaw everything and all the leading lights of the community of society assembled there. Well, California has become the city on the hill for the other 49 states. You know, it's gotten to be a cliche that it's the sixth largest economy in the world, sandwiched between Great Britain and France. You know, it's astonishing when you think about it. It is almost a nation state in and of itself. But it's so much more than that. California leads the way. California has set the standards. In my lifetime, I can remember back uh, when I was a, a barefoot boy with cheek. I went to Huntington <laughs> Beach with my surfboard trying to learn how to surf back in the 60s. Nobody in my family, none of my cousins back east had any idea what surfing was. And it was the Beach Boys that carried the clarion call around the world. 
California would invent this and people in New Jersey and Akron, Ohio and Minneapolis would glom onto it and try to find some place to surf in the middle of the country. That happened and that was because of California. California was the promised land and set the standards. California, through the help of Walt and Roy Disney, invented a theme park. Disneyland was the first, but now they're everywhere. California invented the movie business. Absolutely. California invented the personal computer and created the industry that is now Silicon Valley. California leads the way, and the governors, Pat and Jerry Brown, get an awful lot of the credit and the blame for everything that that implies. So father and son, is there a huge difference in governing? Are we observing for Jerry Brown a more zen approach to managing our resources and the state's welfare? Well, I mean, one of the reasons I'm trying to tackle this book is because I'd like to answer that and many more questions about this iconic father and son for myself and then for a larger reading audience, but to try to summarize, to try to capsulize who these two men are and why they were important to California during their respective times in office. Pat, the father, was the product of the first major wave of Western or rather Eastern immigration into California. His father was Irish Catholic, and his mother uh, descended from staunchly German Protestant roots. And he grew up in the 20s and came of age during the Depression, followed a legal career and politics at the same time. His real name is Edmund G. Brown, but he got his nickname in high school because he was always going around finding soapboxes to stand on and orate. So everybody kiddingly called him Patrick Henry. Give me liberty or oh, give me that. Great. <laughs> so Patrick was shortened to Pat, and whenever people would drop by the house to find Edmund G, they asked for Pat. And his father got hot under the collar and said, his name is not Pat, his name is Edmund. <laughs> he was first elected governor in 1958 and then very famously re-elected in 1962 when his opponent was Richard Nixon. This was the now very famous drunken speech from Richard Nixon upon losing in the November election in 1962. It came out and rather than politely telling the press corps that he had lost and that he uh, was conceding to Pat, he stood up in front of them and said, uh, well, you're not going to have Richard Nixon to kick around anymore. I've had it with you people. And went on to lay into the press corps in much the same way that we see a, a president now tweeting about the press corps. Only this was back in the days when that was still seen as being kind of crazy. Not sure exactly where we've gone in 50 plus years regarding our elected or unelected leaders. I don't think we've matured. Not a lot. <laughs> Not much. But you know, it's interesting this dynasty from Northern California mm -hmm. versus those from Southern California. 
and how their vision of this state is. Is it a different vision? There has been Northern California and there has been Southern California. And they have their own capital cities. The Southern capital of California is Los Angeles, obviously. And the Northern capital has always been San Francisco. And each of those entities have different cultural and social and political underpinnings. Southern California has been traditionally more, I don't know, reactive, pro-business, anti-labor. San Francisco has always been traditionally more altruistic, more oriented towards organized labor. Arguably, in part because it's such a, um, a major port for trade from all over the world, especially from the Pacific, it's also been far more tolerant, I think, toward immigration. And you have these two separate states almost. There's been plenty of talk over the last 175 years about actually separating the two into two separate states. And there's a competition of resources. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think of Jerry Brown today versus Jerry Brown in his first, you know, reign as governor after Reagan. You know, to me, it was less restrictive financially. I mean, I think when he took over this time around after Schwarzenegger, there was this almost grandfather approach to fiscal responsibility. Well, yes. I mean, that is, that is again, from my point of view, from the standpoint of trying to dissect and, and understand viscerally the character of this fascinating man, Jerry Brown, that is one of the delicious aspects of Brown 1 and Brown 2. That, incidentally, is how the pundits in the press corps in Sacramento differentiate amongst themselves over the two Jerry Browns, because this is also unprecedented. And here we have this major state, and we have the same guy occupying the governor's mansion at two separate times in the evolution of the state. And that's never been done in the United States. Not to my knowledge. I've done some research into it, and it may have happened. I don't know, but I haven't been able to find it. Well, you write in the preface of Bloodline, which is extraordinary reading. Somewhere along the way, something happened. California dreaming edged toward night terror. But when exactly? And how? And what part did the Browns, father and son, play in the rise, decline, and tentative resurrection of America's Tomorrowland in the age of Donald Trump? Well, that is the central question and thesis of the book. I cannot at this point answer it to you because this is a work in progress, but I can <laughs> I can dance around it and I can tell you what I do know, what I suspect, and maybe elaborate a bit more on the question itself. Between Brown 1 and Brown 2, something happened. Pat Brown, who was the dictionary illustration next to a traditional pole, he was a backslapper. He treated his enemies with as much glory and glee as he did uh, his friends. He was a politician and, through yeah. and through. Uh, he left office under something of a cloud 
and it was not necessarily through his making. He was a victim of circumstances. Uh, The two overriding factors that uh, ended his governorship in 1966 were the Watts riots in Los Angeles in the summer of 65 and the free speech movement uh, at Berkeley both of which involved uprisings, racial and uh, political, that for various and sundry reason, elective officials did not see. And Pat Brown was utterly blindsided, both by Berkeley and Watts, and Reagan made the best of it and defeated him by uh, close to a million votes. Hmm. Would you say that was a surprise to have such a Republican win, or was that because he was, quote-unquote, Ronald Reagan, a favored son? Well, I think it was because he was Ronald Reagan, a movie star. Okay. In part. I mean, I think that had a great deal to do with it. I think that Donald Trump is president because he told people they were fired on The Apprentice. He's a reality TV show superstar, amongst other things. But what's interesting to me is this notion of these two Jerry Browns. There's a different energy coming from him today. It's very subdued. Yes, And there are many reasons for that. Probably the overriding reason is that Jerry, unlike a good many politicians, has learned from his own experience. And we as a state are very fortunate about that because he has the same fundamental ideals that he's had since he was enrolled in a Jesuit seminary. I mean, that's one of the delicious things about Jerry is that he's always taken faith very seriously, but he does not fix himself in his ways, if you will. He became enamored of Buddhism uh, during his fallow period between Brown One and Brown Two. He essentially went on an odyssey for quite some time. Uh, I loved him then. In fact, I was a big devotee to his radio show on KPFK. Oh, wow, yeah. I, I felt he was courageous, outspoken. I think it was a very freeing time for him. Mm-hmm. And I felt it actually is not reflective in his gubernatorial time right now. It's like he left that person behind a little bit. But he's just as defiant. Jerry understands, unlike Trump, what the strictures are on elected office. I think this was true even during Brown 1. He understood that when you are elected to office, any office, that essentially it's a popularity vote. And he accepts that and looks upon it philosophically from that point of view. So he's not saying, okay, I've been elected to office and I automatically have a mandate. He does not rest on his laurels. He never has. California is not turning back. Not now, not ever. His truth is marching on. I have to interject here that he is a thorn in Trump's side. (laughs) I think it's probably more like uh, a spear. There are signs that are disturbing. We've seen the bold assertion of alternative facts, whatever those are. We've heard the blatant attacks on science, familiar signposts of our democracy, truth, civility, working together, have been obscured or even swept aside. And let me be clear, 
we will defend everybody, every man, woman, and child who's come here for a better life and has contributed to the well-being of our state. Given that Trump has now pulled out of the Paris Accords, Jerry Brown is once again a thorn in his side. Brown has led the way, affirming that California will meet or exceed the standards set out in the Accords. Jerry Brown is firm about what he sees for the future of California, but where does he sit in terms of the privatization of water? I go back to what I said earlier about Jerry recognizing the strictures of elected office. Mm -hmm. He can do a lot, but he can't do everything. And He's never been guilty of waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning and tweeting out how he's going to change everything and make America great again, or California. I think he's painfully aware of the threat of privatization of water. He's been a student of water needs in California in particular for decades. One of the wonderful things that he brought to office was this multi-generational understanding, both in his own lifetime and in the lifetimes of his father and his uh, grandparents, of water and its importance to California and how you deal with that. And, you know, Governor Brown one understood this the very first day that he went into office. Remember, this is the guy that created the Air Resources Board. This is the guy who uh, created the California Coastal Commission. This is the guy who first got California involved in a hard look at alternative means of energy. He cares deeply about the preservation of what we have and not just the exploitation, which may be the single biggest difference between himself and his father. I think it's his ultimate legacy. Jerry, God bless him, he just turned 79 years old. He was on CNN a few weeks ago, and when every time poor David Axelrod tried to bring up his legacy, he'd slap him down and say, legacy is for people who are over. <laughs> you know, I'm not here to talk about legacy. I'm here to talk about action. I'm talking about doing things. I'm looking forward. I'm not ready to retire. This from a 79-year-old guy who is beginning to look like his father, incidentally. But getting back to this whole question of water and Jerry and how he will tackle or would tackle that key problem, I think he understands that he can only do so much. You know, when he came into office in 1974, he said, think small. We are in an era of limits completely counter to his father and his immediate predecessor, uh, Reagan. Both of them were, you know, beating their chests, one Democrat, the other Republican, but they were both talking about California leading the world and the U.S. being the city on the hill and blah, blah, blah. And Jerry was this voice of caution, even back when he was in his uh, mid-30s. Yes, we are exceptional. Uh, yes, there is a measure of manifest destiny in California. But don't let hubris seduce you. <laughs> rip you a new one. Yeah. And I think that that is the one theme that has followed through from uh, Jerry 1 to Jerry 2. On the 
question of water. Uh, the one thing that we know that he is doing is uh, trying to save the Delta by championing this idea of pumping in fresh water and pumping out the bad water. I don't know how feasible that is. I'm not technologically able to fall on one side or the other, but the fact that he has actually thought about it and he's... And he's also doing it because the manna can't sustain, given what could be years of drought, some rain, etc. So, I mean, it's a visionary concept. It's almost like the rest of the country needs to celebrate a shot in the arm politically. And this family that almost seems like a little bit of California's Camelot. Oh, sure. My personal disappointment about Jerry is that, unlike his father, he didn't take the time in his lifetime journey to stop and father an heir. He has nieces and nephews, none of whom have shown any interest, to my knowledge, in succeeding to the Brown dynasty. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure, you know, who, if any, from that clan would or could stepped up to take over when he steps down. Uh, that he's 79 and he's still hard charging and maintaining his uh, bluster. Dennis, it's so interesting when you take on a subject and I thought about our conversation today related to everyone's fascination with this Russian investigation and being the extraordinary timeless journalist that you are and investigator that you are, you know, it goes back to Balzac's quote, behind every great fortune is a great crime. <laughs> yes, well, that's, that's kind of been the overriding theme of my entire career. I make that fundamental assumption whenever I dig into um, these dynastic families, if you will. <laughs> I mean, there is a lot of truth to that. And I think to those of us who are so excited to read each new book that you produce, even with great figures like Bob Dylan. You know, there is the underbelly of him, and of course, you know, the extraordinary Lou Wasserman biography, which retells the story in a way that I think defines both him and his era. Being that you are the investigative reporter that you are, I cannot let you go without bringing up several questions related to the scandal that we're living through. Do you see this as a Watergate? Oh, this is light years beyond Watergate. You think an impeachment trial is on its way? Well, uh, I think that if the Democrats were in charge and showed any true dynamism in either the Congress or the Senate, yes, I think Im impeachment would be absolutely uh, inevitable. God knows that what Trump has done to date that we know about so far exceeds a blowjob in the Oval Office. It's just jaw-dropping uh, how he's been able to sustain to date. You know, the problem is that we have a party that's now in charge of all three branches of government that apparently is utterly, I don't want to say corrupt. I mean, you could say that, I suppose. But they seem to be reflective of the real politic thinking of a Henry Kissinger and or a Mitch McConnell. These are people who care less about country 
or the future of their own children than they uh, care about raw power and its exercise today. Now, right now, what can we get away with as opposed to what can we do for the betterment of mankind? or at the very least, the betterment of Americans. The notion that this administration has gotten so far, forget the, the lying, which is one thing. To me, what's just so fundamental is that the rest of Congress has not stepped in to take back some kind of moral dignity as civil servants, as officials that were elected. And you know, when you look at the list of potential almost mafiosa ties that Trump and his family have to these characters like Felix Sater or Bayrock and this whole litany every single day on the news that practically proves not so much the collusion, but the fact that we elected a crook. Yeah. You know, it's not just morally destructive to us. But I'm wondering if we looked at history, if we see this as something that was meant to be after Obama. I'm not sure if I subscribe to the notion of history being preordained in that way. I do think that there is precedent that we can look back upon and maybe take from that some indication of what our future is going to be. What I'm thinking of is the... uh, short, sad reign of uh, Warren G. Harding, who came after a very popular president who had his own problems. Woodrow Wilson was arguably a racist, but he saw us through a world war and before he had his stroke, managed to put uh, the United States on the international stage as uh, one of the leading powers in the world, if not the most promising. Um, All the European dynasties were beginning to fall by the wayside. And, you know, Woodrow Wilson probably ushered in what's become now known as the American century. But then he had a stroke, and his wife took over the presidency, and nobody knew that for decades to come. But then Warren G. Harding was elected in 1920 as a Republican, along with beginning of the Bolstead Act. It had all these same ironic, clashing events taking place in that year, in 1920. You got prohibition, but you also have the women's vote. Mm -hmm. So you've got progressive politics triumphing on one part and absolute reactionary politics. Which we just had with this election with Bernie Sanders and Trump. There you go. It's like just diametrically opposed. And what you wind up with in the White House Mm -hmm. back in 1920 is this unbelievably corrupt but widely lauded and handsome politician who immediately hustled his mistresses into the White House and began until (laughs) until recently, the single most corrupt administration in American history. He did not last very long. I mean, when you look at somebody like a Jerry Brown, you see, you look at a figure in a state that's our own island out here. Yeah. You know, we're about to pass a revolutionary health bill that could get on the ballot and set the stage to 
have single payer across the country. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the political firebrand in California, even with a Gavin Newsom coming after him, you know, we feel modern. Well, and we are. Well, you know, what, what we're going to have, I predict, is a replay of the early 1920s, at least nationally. Harding dies unexpectedly in a compromising position. I have little doubt that something akin to that is going to happen with Trump. I don't know if he's going to get caught with uh, Russian hookers or with a Arabian horse or what, but something's going to happen because Trump is 71 years old. He weighs more than any president since Taft. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yes, and Taft famously was lodged in a bathtub when he was a Supreme Court justice and could not get out. He had to call his aides in to help him unwedge himself to get out of a bathtub. I can see something like that happening to Trump. Trump is, for all of his alleged energy, this guy, you know, who's up all night, okay, at 3 o'clock in the morning. How many people do you know who are up regularly at 3 o'clock in the morning? Would you ever write about him the who? way you have about Lou Wasserman, Trump? I don't know. I, I have a very good friend, David K. Johnston, who used to oh, write yeah. for the New York Times, and he sort of made Trump his religion in terms of investigative journalism and followed him. And, and it came out with a, a pretty good book this last year about Trump. No, I don't know. I mean, Trump is a clown. He's not an interesting man. What it really boils down to is how we vote in this country, because even though that energy of excitement did occur for Trump, but he won because 43% of the American public didn't vote. And I mean, the figure might even be higher. But fundamentally, we don't have elections like that in California. No, we do not. What would this look like if we didn't have the 24-7 news cycle or social media as we know it? Mm -hmm. Would we be as enlightened of the damage that has been done by this administration? Well, first of all, the system is rigged. But it's rigged in a very obvious way. And it's rigged because the Republicans are a hell of a, a lot smarter and far more devious than the Democrats. And I give them a lot of kudos. I mean, this begins with Karl Rove. And it's not rigged because of Russia. It's rigged because it's, of gerrymandering and voter registration and how we vote and who can vote. Voila. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And also, may I say, because I've spoken to a lot of millennials, they just don't feel inspired to vote. What would you say to the journalists of the future who are trying to make a name for themselves, like your granddaughter, who I'm very inspired by? How best to tell a story that regains the sense of American ideals, things to root for, heroes to care about? Are they as newsworthy today as the Donald Trumps and the scandals? You know, if anything has happened in the past 50 years to give me pause about journalism and its future, it has to do with the rise of journalism as entertainment. At the dawn of real hardcore broadcast journalism with Edward R. Murrow and CBS and Walter Cronkite 
and uh, all of Murrow's boys, as they called themselves. News was specifically segregated from the entertainment side of broadcast. There was the news division, and then there was the entertainment division at the then three networks, CBS, NBC, and ABC. And never the twain did meet, or were they supposed to anyway. Oddly enough, that started to blur with the uh, beginnings of primetime news as entertainment with 60 Minutes. And then it's kind of just over time went downhill from there. During Ronald Reagan's presidency, he used his FCC to denigrate and tear down that wall, as it were, ironically enough, between news and entertainment. And it got worse and worse. And by the time we got to the 1990s, it was hard to differentiate between news, what, you know, what we need to know as a civilized culture to govern ourselves, and entertainment. How many plates can you spin while there's a, a sea lion uh, on the other end of the stage? And cable news further fuzzed that division between news and entertainment. So now you've got Sean Hannity on the right and Chris Matthews on the left uh, shouting at their guests, more interested in positing their own personal opinions than they are furthering the gathering and the explication of, of the daily news diet. And as a, a direct result, the audiences out there however large they may or may not be, begin to suspect what they're being fed as being news or, or not. I mean, what is it? Is it news or is it entertainment? And, you know, in this last election cycle, what we've heard for the first time, this meme fake news. You know, it's like an oxymoron. What? Fake news? I mean, one does not equate to the other. It's like military intelligence. <laughs> We've come to this crisis point in terms of journalism in this country, and it, it is, uh, you know, it, it really is serious. Millennials, like my granddaughter, who is going into journalism, who's doing spectacularly, has no place to land. She's done uh, some stuff for The Nation magazine now, and she is talking about going there. But, you know, God bless the, the Nation and Katrina Vandenhovel and her grand experiment with the progressive journalism. It has a, a minuscule audience, you know, like all other print outlets, probably is doomed at some point. So I don't know where all of this is going to lead. Journalism has a place right now, an essential place. And we keep hearing this over and over again in regards to backing up the New York Times and the Washington Post and making sure that journalism is alive and well for the next generation. But I don't know. I mean, we're at this turning point, uh, a critical juncture. Journalism and reporting the news has never been more important. But our country uh, wants to be entertained. We want to escape the reality. We don't want to have a song and, and a dance and a gin and tonic at the end of the day. 
we don't want to have to deal with the hardcore nuts and bolts of how best to parcel out our resources, how best to govern ourselves and make the globe sustain itself for another generation, for another century, so that our children and our great-great-grandchildren still have a place to live. I want to thank you, Dennis, so much for such a lively, historic, and meaningful conversation today. You know, I think in an era where we are numb by the political discourse 24-7, this discussion today really awakened me. And I can say that we are all really looking forward to your new book, California Bloodline, The Legacy of Jerry Brown. And I want to invite all of our listeners to go to Dennis's website, dennismcdougall.com, where you can explore all of Dennis's books. If you have protested for anything in the last 18 years, you may very well be in my book, I Protest. Please go to my website, www.tishlampert.org, where you can purchase your own limited edition copy. This episode would not be possible without my team, James Koblenz, Kim Langbacker, Amy Kessler, and I want to thank Richard Ruskin for his inspired music. If you're not familiar with Richard's music, you can find him at liondogmusic.com. And remember, America Speaks believes every one of us has a story and a voice.